Welcome to Ruben's Sight Class. I'm Adam Robbings. And I'm Matt Ludden. So hi, Matt. You're on Zoom today. How's it? Is it seven weeks of uh, stay, staying at working from home now? Uh, locked in a condo with an 11-month-old baby doing all the work of the brewery. Um, it, it's been a wild ride, but it's been fun. <laughs> Are you like circling to get your exercise or how, how's that? <laughs> Walk back and forth around the condo. <laughs> Not as many steps as at the brewery. No, no, no. Um, so, so today is like the start of May, and um, we're still in the stay home, stay safe order in Washington. And um, we, we're going to uh, be running through the uh, interview that we did with uh, Gary Sink from Beverage Place Pub uh, today. Now, we did that interview back in, uh, I think it was New Year's Eve, wasn't it, last year? It was, which is cr- kind of crazy how quickly the time has, has flown since then. It seems like yesterday that we were there sitting with him having a pint in his pub and uh, hanging out. And it's kind of would be nice to be able to do that again. <laughs> but, I think that those were the good old days just a few months ago. We took it for granted, right? And now it's, it's you know, it's, it's certainly not that. But um, let's um, let's get into the uh, the the meat of the podcast and and so here's uh gary sink with uh beverage place pub so we're here with uh gary from a uh, beverage place pub so thanks for coming gary yeah i was well, already here. you're already here yeah of course so <laughs> thanks for not thanks for letting us come thanks for hosting us <laughs> so uh beverage place is um a premier cell beer bar it's it's um always been one of our favorites at, at, at myself personally and at Rubens and I was just looking and like you've been like draft magazines top 100 best beer bars for like seven years running and then I lost count I couldn't <laughs> count any more than that you know seven's a lucky number right yeah. and like rate beers you're rated one of the top 50 best beer bars in the world right? so that, we've yeah we've been in that list before it's a, yeah. there's a lot of lists out there but yeah, uh, yeah. no matter which one we're always uh, proud to be among among those great places yeah yeah, yeah. so um how did you um, How did you get into being a publican? Uh, well, I was born back in no. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, good. That's good. <laughs> um, in Everton. Is it it, Everton? Yeah, <laughs> true. We'll talk football later, right? <laughs> uh, Sounds good. <laughs> essentially, I mean, my background growing up uh, as a in high school in Germany uh, with an English mum uh, made me kind of exposed to beers of all sorts at a, at a young age, at a legal young age. <laughs> in uh, Germany, legal in, in Germany. Legal in Germany. Um, and uh, I don't know, that, that carried through into college, and I started homebrewing college uh, because we couldn't, didn't have access to very good beer back then. It was the early 80s. Um, you know, you could, if you're lucky, you could get Anchor Steam up here, went to University of Washington. Uh, Red Hook and Grants and Hales were you know, hadn't quite started up when I started homebrewing, um, but they started soon after that. Uh, so I've always had an affinity to, for, you know, finding good beer. And, um, you know, fast forward 15 years later or so, and my wife and I are living in West Seattle, and we realized we, every time we want to go have a good variety of beers, we have to leave West Seattle because there weren't any good beer bars here. This is in the early 90s. Uh, sorry, yeah, early night was when we first moved here. And so by about the year 2000, we got back from a European vacation and we said, you know, if we don't, somebody's got to do a beer bar, why not us? And so we just jumped in with both feet and started Beverage Place Pub. And in 2003, we 
uh, opened the doors with, you know, 14 taps of whatever we could, you know, find. And now we've got 37 taps from beers from all around the world and over 100 bottles. Cool. So what was that little nudge to get you to open? Because it's a big deal becoming an entrepreneur, right, from your day job because you kept your day job for a number of years right? I did like for 10 15 yeah, years yeah, about 12 years yeah 12 years. I, I I basically took a one-year sabbatical to open the pub so I was uh, off of the day job which also meant I wasn't getting a paycheck from the day job so <laughs> my wife uh, indulged me there thank goodness and but we we got uh, I don't know, like I said we we just felt like West Seattle was ready for it um, and it wasn't with you know it wasn't like we opened our doors and all of a sudden we're printing money. It was it was a struggle to educate uh, folks around here about what's what's out there, what's available, and and uh, get people to try new things. Uh, there's definitely a contingent of the born and raised in West Seattleites who are saying, "Oh, people don't want that fancy stuff," and I'm going, "Yeah, I mean we want that fancy stuff." So we think there are other people in West Seattle who want the fancy stuff too. So um, we just had to. Um, you know, start rotate, rotating the beers in and, and um, letting people, educating people. I think I, I try to create staff that didn't just push a, a pint across the bar, but actually talked about what the guest was about to receive. Did you see, was it a word of mouth thing? So it, it was a slow snowball effect? Oh, or? yeah, definitely. I mean, you have to remember the early 2000s, there was no social media at all. I mean, even an email list was a, not a really robust thing. Um, so it was totally word of mouth and trying to um, get people to come through that door, uh, which is you know, sometimes a bit difficult when the prior, um, the prior establishment that was in the location was, you know, what I call a basic sports bar. You know, they had some, some craft beer, but more like the stuff that you find in every sports bar in King County kind of thing. Um, so we wanted to change that up and, and bring in new things. So. We- the location now wasn't the original location, right? So Correct. You, yeah, we you... we started out uh, right across the street. The street being Beverage Place, uh, and uh, we started out over there in 2000. Well, we bought we bought the place called the Full Moon Saloon in 2001. We changed it to Beverage Place Pub when we had uh, kind of finished our metamorphosis uh, <laughs> from sports bar to beer bar, and so but. It, we couldn't stay there because we couldn't get a long-term lease there from the landlords. So um, we found the building right across the way, was up for sale, and uh, now we have a permanent home. Oh, cool, cool. What, is, it, is it urban legend, or was this something to do with the monorail, like, originally? Was that yeah. why it was up for sale? Oh, yeah. This property that, that we're on right now um, was slated to be a monorail station. It was supposed to be the, the, the end of the line of the south, south run of the monorail station. Uh, that was supposed to head to Ballard, too. Uh, <laughs> now, that would have so been perfect. I know. We would have been very well connected. Um, if I had a vote, I would have voted for it. <laughs> so, we voted for it five times. Apparently, it, it <laughs> That failed. wasn't enough. Still <laughs> never happened. It still never happened. But, uh, so that's why, beca- that's what came up for sale. Uh, I see. And prior to the monorail buying it, it actually was a video rental store. Awesome. So, it kind of probably wasn't long for this world anyway, no, with, no, that, with no. that tenant, but... Um, <laughs> But uh-huh. it, it's, uh, this building was actually built in the 1920s, and its original occupant was a tavern. Yeah. So, uh, so we still have a, a picture from back then from the Historical Society of, uh, of the Sears Tavern right here in this location. Oh, cool. And, and your, your bar itself has a lot of history to it. Yeah, the back bar. Um, 
some people get confused with terminology. They, you know, there's there's bar backs and there's back bars. Bar backs are people. <laughs> yeah. uh, they assist bartenders. Yeah. <laughs> uh, back bars are things, uh, <laughs> and uh, it's the it's basically the the furniture behind the bar there. And ours is a 1907 Brunswick back bar. It was built in Chicago over 100 years ago, and some folks uh, that owned a bar in Kent, Kent, Washington. Uh, had it shipped over and had it there in their establishment and a couple of moved around a couple of times in Kent over a hundred years. And, uh, we got lucky that, uh, it was being auctioned off, uh, at a time that we were looking to find something just like that. We just didn't think we would find it so close. <laughs> oh, that's great. Um, people often talk of like their, their craft beer revelation, you know, like when you really, found flavor in beer um was that in germany or was that did that really happen later on in life after I, university maybe yeah i would say that you know being in germany being a 16 year old kid in germany and being able to go to a gasthaus and, and enjoy a, a half liter of pilsner was great but it, it was not like my appreciation for beer it was a, my appreciation for being able to drink that that, that was developed then uh, and same with going to the pubs in England where, you know, getting a pint of bitter and it, it was awesome. It was mostly for the social aspect of being in those uh, environments. I appreciate it, but I didn't really think about the beer or anything like that other than, you know, a vehicle for a social lubricant, if you will. Uh, but, yeah, once I came to university at the University of Washington and realized that, we couldn't get those, start to think, well, yeah, that, those beers were really good. And, you know, mind you, there's a, a place for a can of Rainier in, 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 in a lot of people's daily lives, but uh, I didn't want to drink that all the time. So um, that's when I found, actually, uh, Sam Smith's uh, Pale Ale and uh, Taddy Porter. Those were, the, the, I found those at the Safeway in the U Village and went, ooh, yes, this is what I want. I want flavor my beer. Uh, unfortunately, being a college student, I couldn't afford those very often. <laughs> so I, hence, I started homebrewing and I trying see. to emulate the flavors that I got from the Samuel Smiths and, and other other beers. No, that's, yeah, I think once you've you know when you're homebrewing, you know you got the bug, right? You know you got the bug for flavor, and you want, you're like on the quest. That's, that's what it was yep. for me. I know. Oh, absolutely. I know. Yeah. Yeah, um, and, I, and I, I, I will fully, freely admit, though, I never, ever even came close to imitating any of the Samuel Smith beers. I, I was not that good of a homebrewer. <laughs> um, what, what do you think um, makes a world-class beer bar? Like, um, you know, I, I talk about this, actually, uh, on an annual basis when we have our uh, anniversary party, which we just had two years ago. We had our 16th anniversary of being Beverage Place Pub. And, you know, any place can have 37 taps. And any, any place can put in tables and chairs and say, okay, come in and we're, you know, we're, we're a beer bar. But what we try to do, and other great places around, around the city and around the world do, is they have staff that know what they're talking about and help educate the guests. Um, but also when you have a certain environment and a certain, I don't know, comfortable atmosphere, you attract the kind of guests that help create the public house. Um, I always touch on it. We call it Beverage Place Pub. We don't call it Beverage Place Ale House or a tap room or anything like that. It's pub 
not because we created a fake English pub, but we created what we think is a new American pub with the beer selections that we have, but we're still a public house. We're still a place where people get together with friends, make new friends. That whole environment of uh, the social interaction, to me, kind of takes any beer establishment and hopefully raises it up a notch to being a great beer bar. Yeah. Yeah, that, that being comfortable in the surroundings is a important. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we have, uh, we have uh, married couples who met here. We've had uh, baby showers, bridal showers, uh, wakes. Uh, the, you know, the whole gamut of life experiences uh, have been uh, celebrated and mourned here because it's, we're a part of the community. We're, we're not, you know, we didn't, we didn't create that and we but we kind of are the vehicle where people yeah, yeah, yeah. kept coming for that. Yeah. So one of the big things when I walk in the front door, which we're sitting right next to, is the look and feel of Beverage Place Club. It's unique in Seattle. And it starts absolutely with the back bar that you were describing. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you went about building out this space and decorating it the way you did and the furniture why you made those decisions. Well, hold on. I'm going to call my wife and uh, get her on the, on the <laughs> microphone here because uh, she, my wife, Terry, is uh, responsible for a big part of that, about the, about the actual the feel, the aesthetics, uh, from selecting the colors to deciding literally what, um, what beer signs go where and how it, they all tie together. Uh, she just had a great eye for that. And, you know, I, I helped some, but, uh, but she, it really was her kind of her vision. And again, what she wanted to create was uh, a place where people feel comfortable. And, you know, one of my first uh, business plans for doing a pub uh, was actually called The Living Room. Oh. And I wanted a tiny little place that sat about 30 people, and that, that was about it. Uh, instead, we have a place that holds about 180, but uh, we still try to keep the vibe of it's someone's living room. It's comfortable. There's couches. There's pillows. There's, you know, um, you know, dark wood. Um, yep. We just um, want people to feel like they can stay a while. And we don't serve food, so it's not about having a meal and, you know, getting somebody new to sit on the table. It's, hey, sit here and have a beer for an hour and chat with your friends. That's fine. You know, yep. it's, it's all about the, I don't know, the comfort level of just hanging out. And I can say that that's honestly a pretty unique proposition in the Seattle area. It's really that welcoming atmosphere, but also a comfortable place to sit and just have a beer with your friends. I mean, I think we, we try and do that with our tasting rooms, but that's a different model. That's a different, different idea. But uh, for a pub to feel this way, I appreciate it. So, well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> When did you decide not to do food? Because that's a big decision in a... Oh, uh, well, it, it was probably instilled to me during, during college because uh, I worked my way through college by working in kitchens and restaurants in, in the Seattle area. So uh, when I got uh, done with that, I'm like, I'm never going to work in this industry again. Well, <laughs> uh, I, I um, was, when I was 16, I cooked fries to get through sixth form in the UK in the Bongo Burger Bar. Yeah. In, in a safari park. I'll never forget picking up the fry, the, 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 what you put the fries in, yeah. whatever that is, the holder or whatever, 
I had it upside down on the floor for some reason. I picked it up and it, I forgot it was. Ouch! I melted my hand in multiple places. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> All for the Bongo Burger Bar. Ow! <laughs> so, uh, well, similarly, one of my first jobs in the in the service industry, uh, I worked for a, a small company called Anheuser Busch. Uh, <laughs> they had um, amusement parks. Um, yeah. And the one I was at was in Williamsburg, Virginia, and. I worked in a corn dog stand, and all we sold was corn dogs and French fries, and uh, which was, you know, being around a greasy atmosphere all day was it an smells, entertaining. Right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, and I had to wear like the little uh, plaid short pants that made me, you know, look like I was a school kid. <laughs> and uh, the weirdest part about it is right across from where this eating establishment, it's like a little booth, uh, was a giant barn with. 12 Clydesdale's horses. So <laughs> the aromas were very much competing uh, all the time when, uh, when people walked by there. But uh, yes, corn dogs is what I did. I'm an expert now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've lost my trail of thought on that. Oh, yeah. Um, so do you, when you, so you started in 01 in the previous location, I think. <laughs> Right. Then you moved here in 2003? Uh, no, it changed the name in 03. I know, it's confusing. And then we moved in 2008. Okay, okay. So from when you started to today and then into the future, do you think the winning formula is going to change or has changed? I think one thing that has definitely changed um, in the past 15 years is because there's so many local breweries uh, that I think the consumers are focusing on drinking local. Yep. Um, when we started, we had, and actually we still have a, a fairly large selection of uh, Belgian beer and English beer and German beer in the bottle, but they don't sell as fast as they used to. Um, I think because one, there are American breweries and even local breweries that are making a Belgian style triple or a Saison or these other styles that were used to be exclusively the, the territory of European brewers, you know, and uh, so as that's changed, as the American brewers have changed and people like to buy local, I think we've seen the drop off of the European breweries. And sometimes I, we try to remind people what we do is specials on bottles from Europe uh, on a weekly basis and try to say, hey, you know, have you ever had Saison DuPont? Because most of the Saisons you have in America are based on this beer, and you yeah. should try the original once in a while just to reset that palate and your taste buds and go, ooh, that's yeah. really good. Yeah. But, uh, but that's, that, to me, that's one of the biggest things um, is, um, is the focus on local. Yeah. That, make, that makes sense. Um, you also have a number of non-beer uh, options, right? Like wine, sake... Um, yeah, cider mead. Cider yeah. mead, yeah, yeah. Not, um, not spirits, right? So, right. Um, how have you seen them, the, the sales of the non-beer selections change over time? Because I wonder if mm -hmm. they're very cyclical, or, uh, or where do you think they're going? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think obviously the, this, the focus on cider has definitely increased in the past fifteen years. Um, you know, when we first started out, we had one cider tap and we had, it was Blackthorn. It was like, okay, this is what everyone knows, comfort level, let's just serve Blackthorn cider. And uh, over time, though, with, again, with 
Washington, Oregon, and California cideries popping up, we went, oh, right, we can make cider here. We have, I mean, we're growing the apples in the, right nearby anyway, so let's, and people started buying local, local cider. Um, then we started getting into, you know, fruit additions to the cider, which made it even more interesting to folks. Uh, I think part of what pushed the cider thing too, of course, was the folks that wanted to key in on gluten-free or gluten-reduced type uh, diets, um, whether it's for, you know, actual medical reasons or health reasons, doesn't matter they, what they choose to do. So they're, cho- you know, choosing gluten-free products. Um, and so that's definitely been the growth, part of the growth of the cider that we've served, for sure. Uh, Did you have six cider types five, now? Five, five cider, cider types yeah. yeah. um, Mead, we've, we're actually seeing an increase in mead lately. That's oh, really? been something that's happened in the past couple of years um, where just, I think it's just sometimes people feel like a, a little bit of taste bud burnout. Like, uh, like uh, you know, I just, yeah, I want something different. And, and we get a lot of, you know, well, now what is mead exactly? You know, and it's like, okay, it's, it's a wine type beverage made from honey as the base instead of grapes um, or apples or whatever. And, um, but there's a great variety in the mead world that uh, we're trying to educate people on. You know, we have 6% mead that's quite dry and we have 18% mead that's uh, very sweet and has different flavors added to it. There's all sorts of variety out there. So is that going more local as well? Mead? Uh, yeah, you know, it's, actually it has. There's, there's quite a few meaderies, again, in Washington, Oregon in particular, that, uh, th- that do a really good job. So we try to you know, rotate them in on a regular basis and, and keep that going. Uh, most of those, the th- nice thing about mead is mo- a lot of them are uh, still, they're not carbonated. So we can do glass pours of them, uh, just like we do our glass pours of wine. Uh, yep. So we can open a bottle and people don't have to commit to an entire bottle um, especially of 18% mead, <laughs> and uh, they can instead, you know, have six ounce glass, six ounce glass at a time, and decide what which ones they really want, and maybe get a bottle next time. So they don't oxidize, do they? Because there's not in a short period, not of, time. In a short period yeah. of time. Yeah. So, um, so that's on the sort of non-beer side, but on the beer side, I mean, how do you how do you curate a list with 37 taps? I mean, I'm, you're going to get, I'm sure, hit up by breweries every five minutes coming mm-hmm. in um so, and that's got to go, have gotten worse over the last 10 well 15 years 12 years right Correct. Um, yeah so i mean how do you how, how do you even start yeah that's definitely true um i mean i'm i've gotten gotten back into doing the beer buying myself again i've taken it back over I've, but i have had uh senior staff do that for me before um one of whom uh now I was at uh, Rubens Brews, but uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> we, 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 did, we did talk about it before, <laughs> but uh, we. Oh, it's all fine. <laughs> uh, but one of the things when I when I trained uh, staff to be beer buyers, uh, I said, so the number one job you're going to have is to say no thanks, because yep. there's way more people coming in to try to sell you beer than we can possibly sell. So let's you know, but but let's keep you know kind of share the love. Uh, I try to rotate as much as possible with, between different breweries. And we still have some, you know, favorite breweries that we go back to all the time. Uh, breweries you know, like yours that we said, you know, we don't, we love getting samples, but we know we don't have to get samples because we know the, the, the beer is always going to be good. It's going to be what it's touted to be. So we don't worry about, no, thank uh, you. will this sell or not? <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, thanks. Uh, so, it's, but it's difficult. We try to keep, you know, keep a rotation of not just different breweries in, but also different styles. Um, 
you know, we're not always going to have a Belgian double on, but I want to make sure every once in a while we throw a Belgian double in there and people go, ooh, what's that? I've, I don't think I've ever had a Belgian double. Uh, yeah. And so, but obviously there's, you know, in, we're in the Northwest, IPAs are still king, so we make sure we have a variety of IPAs, uh, you know, both hazy and clear. <laughs> uh, and fruity and dank and different flavor profiles even within the IPA range uh, because, you know, not everyone likes the same thing, so we want to keep that variety going. Have, have you seen, um, like, the percentage of IPAs on your list grow over time, or do you keep that the same and, like, go through them quicker, like, turn them quicker? Or yeah, how do, how do I, try to, I, I try not to become, I don't want to be an IPA house. I mean, we're a beer bar, not an IPA bar. Yeah, uh, yeah. So with 37 taps, um, you know, it's it's definitely very easy to fall into the trap of like, well, let's have a dozen IPAs on all the time because we know people love IPAs. But that's, to me, that's doing a, a little bit of a disservice to the taste buds of the entire community out there. Yeah. Um, but if we have four or five or six IPAs on, that's plenty for people to choose from and figure out what kind of hop profile they really appreciate. And we can always have something that will fall into their, their wheelhouse um, and leaves the other taps open for a whole bunch of fun, other fun styles that people aren't thinking of. And uh, so the percentage of IPAs hasn't really changed? I, I try to keep it pretty, sta- pretty steady, yeah. Okay. Okay. So kind of along those lines with IPAs being the dominant thing, certainly in our Pacific Northwest culture, <clears throat> and the fact that we've recently come into the new decade of 2020, what are some of the changes you've seen in, let's just limit it to IPAs, the what are people looking for in IPAs? How is that changing? Do you have any predictions for where things are going? Like, we're looking at it all the time. We know it sells in our tasting room, but w- right. what are kind of some of the trends in IPA that you see? Uh, I mean, I've, you know, obviously you guys are, are, are part of the, the, the hazy trend of, of, of having, you know, beers that have more oats or wheat and, and to make them a, a little, a little chewier, I say, uh, is my term for it. But I think, you know, there's been other uh, attempts at um, experimentation that haven't really caught on. Like the Brute IPA, I think there's, there's, I think there's a niche for it, but it's not going to be huge. Uh, but it, uh, partly because I, I'm not sure if it's as clearly defined of a sub-style as, as what a hazy is. Although sometimes I wonder, if, like, what is a hazy exactly? Because there's some some beers out there that are, yeah, that's kind of cloudy or it's just unfiltered, but it doesn't go full on, you know, New England style, almost looks like a milkshake type hazy. So there's some variance there. Um, I think, I, I don't know, as, as, as much as the hazy IPAs have become popular, I still also think there's a bit of a, not really a backlash per se, but an appreciation for the traditional West Coast or even Pacific Northwest styles of IPAs that maybe have, you know, a little more of actual malt backbone, but also have a little more bite in that finish uh, that you can actually taste the bitterness. I think those are, there's still plenty of room for that kind of variation as well. So, uh, Do you see um, hazies having longevity and do you... Do you have any feelings of other styles that are going to grow significantly in the future? I mean, I, I definitely, yeah, I, I don't think the, the hazy IPA concept is, is going to go away at all. I mean, it's, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a nice flavor profile. It's nice, and people like that nice juicy citrusy flavor. It's, it, that's great. Um, I do think, to me, the 
um, what I do see growing, which I really appreciate, is uh, the increase in lagers that are being uh, brewed by a lot of the breweries out there. Uh, some of them, some breweries out there are focusing solely on lagers and not doing ales at all. But uh, uh, I think that's really appreciated. It's not just you know the Pilsner style, but also seeing really well-made Vienna lagers and Mertzens and Schwarzbeers. Uh, I think that's great, and I think that's um, a certain flavor profile that I truly appreciate, probably partly because of my time in Germany, but uh, but just the, the flavors that, you know, the beers are actually fairly light and, you know, around 5 to 5.5%, but they're still full of flavor. And I, I just, uh, I think as long as the breweries that are making them are making them well and keeping them nice and clean, um, I think we're going to see more of them out there. Something we always talk about at the brewery that you know, we put a, a new Pilsner on tap and the first keg is going to go to the staff. Like, we're all going to drink that straight away. And something Adam and I have talked about in the past that, you know, before IPAs became a mainstay amongst consumers, there was green shoots within the brewing community. Like, the industry itself, that's what we wanted to drink. And now, lagers are what we want to drink and what we often drink on our uh, end of our long work days. So, you know... I certainly feel like the time is ripe for loggers to become more mainstream and kind of take the world by storm. Um, we'll see if that actually comes true. Are you seeing the Velocity of Lagers as pulling more? I know you have a yeah. house Pilsner handle. Yeah, and, I, and the, the Pilsner's one, but, I, but like I said, also... Um, all lagers. All lagers. Uh, when we put them on, people are like, oh... Vienna Lager. I mean, that's actually, if I, I'd say Vienna, Vienna Lager, when you put that, we rotate one of those in, that's one of the fastest selling beers that we would, will have on other wow. than, other than the IPAs themselves, which are still most popular, but. Wow. But, Making uh, a mental note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, so we did a Vienna Lager this um, fall, right? Um, and that, that, that went really well, but that was just a one and done type thing. So we don't really have much data to support how it really did out in the wild. Um, and, and we have, a, like you said, a Mertzen, we have a Fest beer. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I've been to Oktoberfest in Bavaria, right? So it's, I, 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 can, I can feel that, that from an authentic perspective, but also from a need. <laughs> I feel that we can, we can survive a little bit better the day after. <laughs> if, if it's true. <laughs> with a filtered lager, right? You know? <laughs> also with age, you know, that, that kind of helps, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. something that we've talked about in past episodes is kind of a trend away from the high ABV beers. You know, we, we've certainly noticed in 2019 uh, regular IPAs, say 6 to 7%, doing much better than imperial IPAs, you know, 8 and above. And there's a trend, you know, seltzer's a piece of this, of this health and wellness. I mean, I certainly think lagers may play into that conversation of good flavor, but easy to drink, less impact on the body, better for those of us that are getting older year by year. So... It's everybody. <laughs> yes, that's the joke. Um, so I, I wonder, that trend towards lower ABV beers and a trend kind of certainly in the off-premise marketplace towards health and wellness. Mm -hmm. Is that something you see reflected in your 
guests here? Yeah, I think there's there's definitely some of that. Uh, I but I still still do think that there's there's room for a full variety of beers. Uh, you know, going away from lagers, maybe back to ales and traditional ales. I mean, a dark mild, you know, a traditional English style, which is usually around three and a half percent alcohol. Uh, we when we put those one of those on, uh, that's also one something that goes very well. Um, now, part of that too, of course, is when something's three and a half percent. It's easy to have three pints and, and still feel perfectly yeah. fine, uh, you know. If but when we put a bourbon barrel aged barley on, on, which I love, by the way, I still I'm never going to give those up. But uh, yeah, you're going to have to be a little more cautious about how many ounces of that you you can consume and uh, one feel okay that night, let alone the next day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so I, but you're right. I mean, I, when, when, from a perspective of. Um, the majority of people that walk in are definitely going to, I think, seeing a, uh, more people looking for something under 6%. Uh, but, you know, we still have uh, regulars coming in that are just that are, that are looking for something big and chewy and that they want to, they can just savor. They don't, they're not trying to drink anything fast. They're trying to, to sip and enjoy their beer and, and read a book or uh, hang out with friends. And, and But just not so much into the, the session part of it, but just enjoying something nice and rich. Do you see, see any green shoots that you think might turn into trends in terms of styles that Matt and I should <laughs> take, <laughs> take note of? And, <laughs> well, uh, I've got to say it again, Vienna Lager. No. <laughs> We're on that. So Conrad in our team, he's been on at me. He was on at me for five years like, about <laughs> Vienna Lager. And it's like every year, oh, next year, next year. Uh, okay, Conrad, we'll do it. We'll do it. We'll do it. And uh, yeah, he, it, it sold really well and the, and the label was nice you know and when we did some cans and it was um, a fun one yeah it was a fun one yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I like that uh, you know that's, that's, that's a tough one I mean I, part of you know what we try to do is you know listen to our guests that come in and say and what are they asking for and yeah. obviously there's still the majority of them are asking for IPAs the majority of them are still asking for sours which is a whole other um, wide ranging flavor profile because when people talk about sours it's like okay how what, what what's kind of sour do you mean you know do you mean a light crisp goza or do you mean you know a barrel aged you know Flemish red that that has super high acidity you know there's also, there's also a, whole, yeah. a big range of stuff there so it's uh, sometimes we have to deal with uh, you know making sure that people are getting the, the kind of sour that they want, even though they just say, oh, I want a sour. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, that's how a sour is not a style. <laughs> yeah. It's just one, you know, like ordering an IPA and say, you know, well, actually, people used to say, I'll have a pint of bitter, but back then that meant something a little different than our IPAs today. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. It's, um, I, I still just think that, you know, variety is, is what holds up. Um, it's... Um, there's not, I don't think there's, I don't think there's anything that's brand new that I'm seeing out there that I think is going to take over the world. Uh, but then again, I didn't see the hazy IPA thing coming either. So <laughs> maybe I'm not the best person to ask about that. <laughs> I, well, uh, I just who, wait for people did? to start who asking for stuff. Who did? <laughs> yeah. 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 I yeah. Wait, yeah. But we just wait for our guests to start. Oh, you know what? We've got a whole bunch of people ask for this thing. We should maybe look into what, who makes a good one, you know, kind of thing. So. Well, there's one group of people that know the answer, and that's customers, right? So yeah. if you can engage them in a way and have open communication, mm -hmm. 
they're the ones that want what we want to give them. Right? Yeah. So it's just exactly. So we we've in this podcast and the one with uh, Kendall earlier. I keep on getting dragged into the music. So who 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 <laughs> who, who decides the music lists? Because uh, well, whoever, whoever's working that day picks, oh, really? picks the music. Um, but um, you know, we that's you know, it's a Pandora for business account we have, and we have a, you know a gazillion stations that people load up there and refine as. You know, was, we just want to try to keep the, the music upbeat and make people, again, it's, a, it's part of the whole ambiance of keeping people comfortable here. It's not, you know, it's the, it's the chairs, it's the colors, it's the lighting, it's the music, um, and obviously the, the friendliness of the staff. All those components go together, so. Do you have guardrails on the music? Because, like, it could, it could get very... Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, it, it also depends on the time of day. I mean, um, you know, we, we don't have a... a, a a ban on death metal, but uh, we don't, we're not going to, nobody's going to want to hear death metal at three o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, but if it's, you know, Friday after midnight and you got a fun crowd in there, then there's nothing wrong with that. But we always want to keep, again, with the music is variety um, yeah. and not have just one style of music playing incessantly because people will get tired of that. They want, um, you know. well, that makes sense. Yep. So another thing I want to think of when it comes to a neighborhood beer establishment, it's something that we think about with our tasting rooms is what sort of events can we put on to kind of break up the monotony of the year for lack of a better phrase. So I would say Beverage Place Pub is really known for their events, your events, um, Hop Vember Fest, which determines your uh, year-round IPA, your, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but where you determine the Pilsner and then Brewers Nights. Can you tell me a little bit about your philosophy about events and how they may have changed over time? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it did. I think in the early days we did what most places did. We just had Brewers Nights, and we'd put on you know five or six beers from a brewery, and they'd come in and talk about the beer and give away some swag, and that'd be the end of it. I think um, I think a lot of the beer drinking public they've have. Uh, realize that you know they have enough pint glasses at home that they don't need anymore so or, you know a lot of those giveaway things aren't even even though they're simple and straightforward and easy they're not as popular anymore i don't i don't think at least not for our crowd um so we try to come up with stuff that either is focusing on a uh, a range of beers from different uh different breweries or um have it activity-based. Uh, we actually have a, an event coming up here in a few weeks. Uh, that's a paper airplane contest. Oh, cool. So, My son would love that. Yeah. <laughs> We're 21 and over, so oh, he's no. going to have to wait. Uh, but yeah, so it's like paper airplane? Uh, so yeah, it was just a crazy idea, and we said, yeah, that's not like fun. That's an activity somebody can do while they're walking around with their beer, and there's still going to be prizes and stuff like that, but it's more than just waiting for a raffle. It's you're doing something, and it's, it's interactive. And, and a little competitive, which is, you know, <laughs> always fun. Uh, but, uh, you know, on, in a couple of days, January 1st, uh, we do a, a, a bourbon barrel bonanza. We basically are going to put a dozen barrel-aged beers on tap when a lot of people are hungover and vowing they're not going to drink for the rest of the month. We're, we're going to put on all, a bunch of big beers. Double down. <laughs> exactly. And say, nope, nope, here's the temptation right here. Uh, and so we'll have uh, 
Rubens Bibas on for that one. Oh, so. great. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. So with events like Hopfemberfest, where there's kind of a friendly competition amongst breweries, you get a lot of brewery folk uh, coming and hanging out. But even outside that, I know Beverage Place is a place that teams like ourselves, we want to hang out at. What does it mean to you, if it means anything at all, to be a place that industry folk want to hang out at? Oh, no, I, I, to me, that's, it uh, you know, makes me kind of proud because it, it, you know, it's, especially if people don't live in West Seattle, but they still want to, you know, I want to go over there and have a beer. You know, uh, it's, um, I don't know, makes me feel like we're doing something right uh, because, you know, well, whether, although whether you're industry or not, you have a ton of choices of places to go. And so we're always trying to make sure that we're not set in our ways, sitting on our laurels, whatever phrase you want to use, and um, that we're always trying to pay attention to what's going on out there and and making it interesting for folks to come in, you know, whether you're industry or not. But I think if you are industry and you know that uh, you you can you can tell from how we run our place and what we do that you know we have clean draft lines, we have you know we take care of the beer uh, that's coming that's coming into your glass. Um, I think folks that are working breweries or tap rooms uh, or even our, our bartenders in other places, they get that more than the general public because they know what can look for, they know what to taste, they know what tastes are, um, can come through if you don't take care of your uh, beers when you're when you're serving them. So, um, so that to me is a, a testament that we're doing something right. <laughs> As craft has grown, we've seen obviously a ton more breweries. So like seven and a half, I think it's almost eight thousand breweries. It may have just tipped over eight thousand, like wow. at the end of the year. Um, and with that has come a lot of tap rooms. So we've seen a lot of tap room growth. We've seen the start of a satellite tap room concept, particularly in California. But now we're starting to see that kind of start up in 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 Seattle, Washington. Um, how are tap rooms impacting your business, and what is your general thought around that as a as a concept? Yeah, um, yeah, I'd say it's, it's it probably definitely has impacted our business to a certain degree um, because people do like um, going to the source, knowing the beer is fresh right there, and and with a number of breweries out there uh, are able to have a dozen or more unique beers on tap, that's enough variety for people to be, you know, like, oh yeah, let's go do that. Um, I mean, I still think we do offer something a little different because we are offering, you know, beers that are not just from different local breweries, but from around the world that you can't, you won't find in a brewery tap room. Um, But I still think, you know, in general, there's a difference in, in, it's in most places, there's a difference in ambiance of what we're doing and going to a brewery tap room, which tend to be, because they're in the brewery, uh, they tend to be more um, commercial feel to them, you know, big high ceilings and you see the stainless steel tanks and it's really cool to be in that kind of environment. Um, but, you know, we're kind of the opposite. We're not industrial, we're, we're home. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. So, so I think there's you know, there's a place for both. Um, it's kind of interesting that we're here in West Seattle. You know, we don't have near the number of breweries that Ballard does. 
Uh, and partly it's because we don't have a lot of that light industrial space that um, is totally being chipped away at in Ballard, I think. Uh, yeah, but, yeah. Uh, For how much longer will we have it there? Yeah, exactly. You know? Exactly. So, um, so there's, there's not a whole lot of breweries in West Seattle. Uh, there's uh, a fourth one is about to open in the Admiral District here uh, in the next month or so. Um, yeah, and, so. Um, but, that, but yeah, it's, they're you know, definitely fewer and far between here because there's just not the kind of commercial space for them here. I think that that makes sense. We're very different concepts, right? And and if you lean into variety, you have a unique selling point, right? That a tap room cannot compete with. Like we can't, a tap room can't have beers from the UK and other countries and different breweries by definition. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I, and I, I I think with our tap room. Uh, we we want our tap rooms to be authentic in terms of having the production there. <laughs> you know, uh, the whole satellite concept is a little scary to me because that is almost by definition a com- competition to to existing customers of ours. If we just go and put bars in places, well, that's a different business, totally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I do say. That. I mean, you know, I. I'm not going to whine about it, but I do think it's a little. It is a little bit of an unfair advantage for for breweries to have standalone tap rooms that don't have breweries in them. Yeah. Um, but you know, am I going to worry about it so much that I'm going to you know lobby my con- congressperson to get it changed? No, I, I, I'm still going to run my business the way I run it, and then hopefully that's good yeah. enough for people to come in here. Yeah. And for us, like we wouldn't we wouldn't have existed if we didn't have a a, a tasting room. Like we literally would. My Grace and I, we wouldn't have been out open with, without that. That was a big part of it. And and now it's where our R&D hub is, right? So like, we can't do, we have, we go to a seven barrel fermenter as our smallest and a 190 barrel fermenter as the biggest, right? Wow. So to give that variety and that experimentation, we can't put that in a 190 every time. You right. Know? So, and a five, well, the distributor won't take a five-barrel batch of anything. Right? <laughs> and conversely, it would cost probably two to three times the cost of the keg to, to actually give it to them because the extra right. labor it, it takes. Um, right. So like it, I think it's for the Nikos, we have to be cognizant of the ecosystem, right? That like we have to, we want to feed excellent beer bars like yours with great beers. Um, and we need to be cognizant of what you need on your side as well. As, as, and we, craft as an industry has to be thinking that way, not just us. And yeah, we, need to, we need to do ourselves everything we can to help. Yeah, pro- it's really pro- true pro- that we, we had a discussion with um, Andy Roy uh, a little while ago, a hop farmer. And we were talking about the symbiotic relationship between hop growers and brewers. And like the, one can't exist without the other. And it just makes me think that, you know, a craft beer bar like yourself and us, we can't exist without you to a degree. You can't exist without us. And that mutual respect and that understanding the ecosystem of what your needs are, what our needs are, it only works if we're all on the same page and we're kind of understanding of what this all works, how this all works. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Yeah, to be honest, I, I... Do sometimes wonder how the beer bars in Ballard, how they sometimes if they, how, 
how that how much of the pie they're sharing of people coming in, you know, uh, coming into coming to the Ballard area. Um, I mean, they're still going to have every establishment is going to have their regulars or locals that are that are loyal to them. Uh, but there are, you know, with with the explosion of the, the breweries in Ballard in the past couple of years uh, and, and continuing, yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean this you know, this month uh, <laughs> is you know how do those beer bars feel about that? See, like I said, we, we don't. I don't have a brewery close to me. The closest brewery is a mile away from me, um, and um, and I will say I, I usually don't carry beer from them because if people want their beer, they usually will just go a mile away and that's, yeah. that's good enough. I won't say ever carry their beer. It's nothing against them, but we, for special events, we will fresh out festival or, or a barrel aged festival or something like that. But I, you know, that's because but we're still fairly far apart, but in Ballard with all these drinking establishments all close together, um, and again, they all have a different vibes. Um, I think part of some of the, tap rooms, including us, that were 21 and over, uh, sets us a little apart from a lot of the brewery yeah. tap rooms because, you know, that, are, that are more family-friendly and, uh, you know, have, not even just family-friendly, you know, welcoming, have activities, have, have space uh, that encourages people to bring their kids in. And that's, I think, something that means that we're not always going after the same beer drinker yeah. at the same time. Um, so we'll get... We'll get the family folks uh, when they get the babysitter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, <laughs> and they'll come in late at night. So. so we have a recurring segment on Sight Glass, the podcast, Ruben Sight Glass, where we have listener questions that come in through the website, come in through email. I'm glad you just said that. I thought you were going to say we'd do karaoke. Because that was going to be horrible. Uh-huh. <laughs> so we generally ask a question to the brewmaster, a technical question, something you've always wanted to ask someone who runs a brewery. So kind of setting you up without uh, letting you know it was coming, but is there any question you ever wanted to ask a brewmaster like Adam uh, that you maybe never gotten the chance to ask? Hmm. That's, yeah, you're right. I'm sorry, I don't have to think about that, but not too long. Uh, as a brewer, I mean, when I, because well, again, I home brewed, never did it professionally. Um, I, I have, uh, you know, we've done collaboration brews where, you know, I've, my participation has been, you know, the photo op, throwing the hops in the kettle kind of thing. And, um, and I've done a little bit more of that some places with developing recipes and such for beers that are for our anniversary. But I always am intrigued when I meet different brewers and how they all seem to have a different balance of what I call science versus art. You know, I mean, how much of, of your brewing are you just crunching numbers and so being a very much a stickler for details and how much of it is like, I think this will be a good idea. You know, this is, I think this will taste good and, and just go on a whim or a, a little bit of a creative fancy instead of just straight recipe precision. How do you balance that out? So in, in England, when you're uh, in the equivalent of high school, between like 16 and 18, it's called sixth form, and you select like three, uh, uh, three subjects. So you specialize from, I did eight when I was between 13 and 16, and then you go down to three when you're between 16 to 18, and you go down to one for your degree. You don't have any minors at all. So 
when I was at my three, so 16 to 18, uh, economics was one of the things I did. And, and I ended up doing an economics degree and, and Grace, um, my wife and co-founder, she also did economics. Um, but uh, between when I was 16 to 18, everything was black and white. Everything was like, this is how it is or this is how it isn't. And when I came out, the biggest thing I learned at university is everything is gray. Yeah, <laughs> screw that. There's no black and white. Everything is totally gray. And, um, and that has stuck with me through everything in, in life. Like you can, like anything, you can uh, politics, you can argue either, either side, right? Um, like sports, like Everton can be good, Tottenham can be bad and vice versa, you know, sometimes, <laughs> you know. But it's the same with, with beer, right? So like I, I see... Um, Science has given you guardrails. It's like, like, yeah, scientifically, you can't go more extreme than, than X and Y, right? But the real answer is in the middle somewhere, and that's where the art comes in. And, and uh, art is more of a gut feel. So it's like, how do you want the whole thing to come together? And um, how do you want it to be positioned in, in, in actuality? Um, so... In terms of art and, art and science, yeah, totally um, every beer is around art and science. But I see science has given you the guardrails, but really where the value adds from, ad comes from a brewer is understanding where between those guardrails we want to sit to create something that is, that's a little bit, shouldn't I say quoi, you know, something a little bit more, a little bit of effervescence or brilliance that's more than just the sum of its parts. And... Um, uh, there's no, there's no scientific answer to that. I don't, I don't think. You know, you'll ask somebody else. Yeah, they'll give you a scientific answer, probably a little bit more. <laughs> but I think it's a lot around art. Um, we 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 talk. I say that, and then we we work a lot in uh, glacial changes. That's the way I, I call it. I, I'm sure we've talked about this before. That mm -hmm. I, have a, I have a beer in my head. And if it's not where I really want it to be, because it doesn't have that little bit of something more, right? I have in my in my head ways of getting there, and we'll do it slowly over time. Like where nobody should notice individually those movements, mm -hmm. but like in two years' time, it, it, I want it to pop. I want it to be that little bit more. Um, again, I think that's totally art. Right. right. So I, I think I think the science is easy to read in a book. Like you can understand it very easily. I mean. We're talking about some marketing concepts earlier today, right? And you know, five C's of marketing is like one, like one of the basic sort of marketing concepts. But it's really how do you take that and live it and make it make it real? That is where where the the true art and the true value add comes from. Okay, interesting. And I think that's the same with your concept actually, because we've talked about uh, having thirty-seven beers, having variety, and having a place that is um that feels like home but like all of those things what you can like listen down and write them down but it's not until you actually hear you can and you can feel it and you can see it and you see the lighting like you have candles on the table you have softer lights above you have um a very uh like set palette that like softens your your mind a little bit i think and until you actually see it in place that sort of um, you could never scientifically write that down as a formula to be replicated. It's about a feel. Right. True. Well, Gary, 
Thanks very much for having us. Oh, you bet. Thank you. Glad you yeah, came thank in. you. Thanks. Thanks again. Cheers. So that was Gary from Beverage Place Pub. Uh, it's always a lot of fun sitting down with with Gary and and chatting when we are in uh, in his his pub. Uh, right now it's it's May the eighth, and uh, we're still in the stay home, stay safe order in uh, in Washington. There is some line of sight in about a month to. Uh, Restaurants being able to reopen um, at significantly reduced capacities uh, to obviously uh, hold down the virus and um, flatten flatten the curve. Uh, he he's uh, been he's had he had to furlough a lot of his staff at the start of the stay home order. Um, right now he's bringing his team team back and expanding some of their to go hours. So they've really leaned into the to go option, which is a great great thing to do they've had some of our beers and lots of other small small batch beers which is um um good to good to see uh, some a staple of of the beer community surviving yeah it's the sign of the times is being able to be flexible and kind of shift your business model uh, on a dime to kind of serve yourselves and serve the community and speaking of that community we we talked at the top of the episode about how much we wish we could be sitting down with Gary and hanging out in his pub. And it just really makes me think of all of the memories I have and the brewery has of being at that pub in West Seattle, celebrating events, celebrating beer launches. Uh, We have a long history with Gary. And when we talk about beer history, it really needs a venue for people to come together and to try all those beers. And there's, very few places like Beverage Place Pub in Seattle. I mean, they're, they're 17 years old now, right? Um, they've been a staple of the Seattle Beer Week, which incidentally we should be in right now if, if it wasn't for COVID-19. Um, We'd be off our first event tonight, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, it's kind of crazy to think that that is so long ago in our minds, right? It's, we've we've gone past this being Seattle Beer Week, but I got the alerts coming up on my phone yesterday. It's like, oh yeah, yeah. But like one one of the stops of the the Seattle Beer Week bus has always been at Beverage Place, so it's it's, it's um, important for that. And one of their big events every year is Hop Vember Fest, and um, there, there's a. Uh, you have to present your case if you're one of the last three breweries uh, in in the in the judging, so that everybody comes in and can vote on their favorite beer. and And we we were three years running in, in the last three, I think it was. And so I had to get up on the podium, and it literally is a podium, right? <laughs> and uh, and present our case. And there was your first was it your first week or something? You had to help with that <laughs> weeks of. Uh after I joined the brewery and it's always going to be one of my favorite memories where I ended up becoming a speechwriter of sorts and kind of wrote this whole skit of questions for the brewmaster after the kind of prime minister's questions tradition <laughs> in the <laughs> British parliament. And that was a crazy night and I'll never forget it. It's fun. It's a lot of fun. Great. So uh, this was the Ruben Sightglass podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to reach out to me at adam at rubensbrews.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you think we've earned it, please give us a five-star rating as that helps others find out about um, our, our chats. I also want to say thank you to Eric Johnson and Quiet Coyote Studios for the music to this show and its production. And until next time, cheers. Cheers.